So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also a psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Gina Cho, co-author of The Anxious Lawyer, an eight-week guide to a joyful and satisfying law practice through mindfulness and meditation. Gina is also a partner at the JC Law Group in San Francisco and a regular contributor to Forbes and Above the Law. Sarah, law is an anxiety-provoking profession. There are high expectations, some of which come from ourselves, and a lack of control over outcomes. I was just reflecting on that this morning after a session with a big law associate, how at every turn there are opportunities for anxiety, and I remember them myself. So it's not really if something's going to make you anxious, it's how are you going to deal with it. And, you know, for reasons beyond the scope of this podcast, we all deal with anxiety differently. But I think just understanding how you deal with it and getting some ideas or tools in place for it is really quite helpful. Our guest today is a lawyer, and she's really written a how-to book to help us deal with anxiety. Gina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Joe and Sarah, for having me. Yes. Hi, Gina. Thanks so much for being with us today. So one of our goals is for the podcast is to normalize the difficult emotions we all experience. And to make that real, we usually begin by asking our guests to share a hard moment. But what I think would be useful this time is for you just to give us your story about how you came to embrace mindfulness and meditation and to write The Anxious Lawyer. Uh, sure. Um, I So I've been practicing law since 2003, and anxiety has always been a big part of my life. Um, But I kind of knew that I sort of hit a wall where I would get up in the morning and do probably what most of us do, just look at my calendar, and, and I would just feel that sense of anxiety rising, and it would just be debilitating. What did the anxiety feel like physically? I can feel my heart starting to race. My stomach would tie, get tied into knots. Sometimes I would almost feel like I was going to throw up. Um, and my palms would get sweaty. It's, you know, it's that sense of dread of not wanting to face the day, not wanting to do the things that were being asked of me. Was there an acute event or some other occurrence that made you want to change or seek help? There were probably several moments, but one that definitely comes to mind is I was doing a presentation at a local bar association there, and I was responsible for inviting all the bankruptcy judges and trustees. And my only job for the day was actually to just get up and introduce all the speakers. But the morning had just gone terribly. Like I arrived at the bar association, there was no coffee, there was no breakfast. Judges are coming up to me asking me if there's coffee. And I, you know, and again, I can just sense that anxiety rising as though it was sort of a personal failure that I didn't have coffee available (laughs) or, you know, so I um, got up to introduce the speakers and, you know, I went down and I said, judge so-and-so, judge so-and-so. And then I got to the third speaker and I could not remember her name. She's someone I'd been in front of you know, probably a hundred times and I just could not remember her name. And I remember I started to sweat 
And then, of course, that just makes the anxiety worse because you think, oh, my gosh, now everyone can tell I'm sweating and I and I can feel myself sweating through my my undershirt and also my jacket, my suit jacket that I had on. And I remember just feeling like I wish there was a hole that would open up so I can just jump into it. And finally, I looked at my notes and I luckily I had written down the person's name and then I you know, just read everything as quickly as possible and got off the stage. And it took me just days or weeks and I couldn't let that experience go. I remember just feeling like such a failure. Um, And I thought, you know, I, this might be a, (laughs) a good reason to maybe, you know, think about getting help so that I don't have panic attacks. I mean, that, that was such a terrifying experience. Oh, Gina, that does sound like a very difficult moment. And I so appreciate the openness with which you shared it. And it made me think of a very important paragraph in your book, actually on page one in the introduction, where you say that when you went around and spoke with lawyers who were suffering from anxiety and depression, what they all said was that the worst part was the isolation they felt, thinking that they were the only ones facing these challenging emotions. I was very happy to read that in your book because it's consistent with what I find in my private practice. And it's what led me actually to want to include a hard moment at the beginning of our podcast. So what did you do to get help? What was your first step? Yeah, so I started to notice that anxiety was just sort of becoming a bigger and bigger part of my life. And then my boyfriend at the time decided this would be a great time for us to get married. So I was planning the wedding. And as we were getting closer to the wedding, I started to notice that I was losing hair, and like clumps of hair. And then I went to a doctor, he ran like a bunch of tests and he goes, oh, Gina, there's nothing physically wrong with you. This is all in your head. And he went to prescribe me a bunch of medication. And around the same time, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist. And she's like, you know, I think you might have an anxiety disorder. Like, why don't you go and check out this clinic at Stanford? And so in my insomnia filled night one day at like 3 a.m., I went and looked at the website and there was like an intake form that you can fill out. So I did. And a few days later, um, the clinic called me back and I went in and they said, oh, you know, you have social anxiety disorder. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is this thing, social anxiety disorder? I felt like such a freak because I it just, you know, it was never something I had heard of. I've never known a lawyer that had social anxiety disorder. Um, but I ended up going through the cognitive behavioral treatment program. You had never heard of social anxiety disorder, and did it feel in some way inconsistent with your notions of being a lawyer? Yeah, and also I think there was this feeling of shame because as lawyers, our job is to socially interact with others, you know, mainly our clients, and that was really the thing that was giving me just so much anxiety. Like I would look at my calendar and knew I had three calls with my clients that day, and like I, I just like I physically felt ill just thinking about getting on a call and it didn't matter that the content of the call would be like nothing unpleasant you know like that really didn't have much to do with that and but of course if it was a call that I was dreading like an opposing counsel who I knew I was going to have a very contentious call with like a lot of times I would just say like I'm not feeling well we need to reschedule this call but inevitably like at some point you have to get on the phone with these people you know Um, So, yeah, it was like this really awful, challenging period of my life. It certainly sounds like it. And those feelings of shame are familiar for many of us. What was the cognitive behavioral therapy experience like for you? Um, Yeah, so it was a group session. And I think that was really, really helpful for um, 
a seeing that other people suffer from the exact same thing that I did. So, for example, standing at a grocery line, if the person in front of you just turned around and said, "Oh, what are you making for dinner?" Like I would start to sweat, um, and just recognizing, like, "Oh, that thing that I thought was just made me a complete freak for experiencing." isn't unique to me. And so I think it really helped to normalize all of my experiences, which then created a space where I can bring acceptance to it. And there's just so much about learning about how the body reacts to um, different stimulus and also recognizing that the physical experience of anxiety can only last for a couple minutes, but what happens is we keep feeding that loop, right? We keep feeding um, that physical sensation of anxiety by like adding additional negative, unhelpful thoughts to it. And so really learning all the different thinking errors and recognizing like, oh my gosh, everyone in the room is laughing at me because they can tell that I'm sweating. Well, that has a lot of assumptions and thinking errors built into that statement. So being able to actually break down that statement and recognizing like, oh, I'm doing mind reading or I'm catastrophizing or, um, and, and I feel like for the lawyer brain, that way of actually analyzing our thoughts was so incredibly helpful. Gina, having gone through treatment and figuring out what works for you, you've written a book. The book has mindfulness and meditation as partial solutions. Can you define those terms? Um, I like to think about mindfulness as being in the present moment and bringing awareness and compassion to each moment. So it's not just about bringing sort of your full attention, but also recognizing the quality of the attention that you're bringing. Because I think we all know sometimes you can show up super irritated and then that's what the world sort of reflects back at you. So coming at this place of um, calm and compassion and kindness, um, even which I think is very contrary to how lawyers typically operate in the world. And then for meditation, I just think about it as mental training. You know, if you are an athlete, you would train your body for optimal performance. And meditation essentially does the same thing for the mind. And also it helps you. It's sort of the formal practice of mindfulness. Just can you say a little bit about how meditating and practicing mindfulness will help lawyers? Yeah, I think for me, the most sort of profound moment was just recognizing that this constant feeling like I was failing. Um, you know, when I brought mindfulness to it, I started to see that that thought wasn't true, but also I was able to have a friendlier stance towards that thought, like my inner critic, right? So I think before when I would notice the inner critic come up, I would go, oh my gosh, I hate this thing. I want to sever it from myself and I don't want to have this thing anymore. All of these negative thoughts and self-doubt. But what I learned was that I can sort of embrace it and take a friendlier stance towards the parts of myself that I don't necessarily like, which then created a, a more easeful relationship with myself. And when I was able to do that, I was able to sort of bring that sense of curiosity and kindness towards others. And I noticed my relationship with others also shifted um, over time. So, you know, people that I had really contentious, difficult relationship with sort of started to soften around the edges. Yes, you know, and it so seems impossible to argue with what you just said, yet a lot of lawyers are skeptical. 
I have lawyers say they're, they're afraid it's going to make them weak or ruin their ability to advocate effectively for their clients or make them mentally foggy or soft. So what do you say to those lawyers? Yeah, and I think that's so funny because, you know, now they're teaching mindfulness and meditation to military personnel, to Marines, and um, and the Seahawks are also teaching it to all of their players. So it's kind of, you know, so counterintuitive. Um, you know, I mean, really mindfulness and meditation, like I said, is a way of training your mind so you can be more focused and that focus can, will be different for everyone, right? So if, if you're a football player, obviously it's being in the moment in the game. Um, and, you know, similarly for lawyers, it's really about like when you're in a, when you're standing in a courtroom, you don't want to have your mind thinking about your grocery list, right? And so it's really kind of training your mind to be more focused, but not just like a focus with the sense of like grouchiness is really being focused and also feeling calm and more at ease at the same time. I wonder if it'd be useful for us to take an example. Say I get a bad email from a client and the client wants something done with a timeline I can't do. Maybe the client expresses a little dissatisfaction with what I've done so far, a little bit of an impatience. Let's go through your techniques, maybe one by one. Let's start off with mindfulness. I get this email. What is mindfulness going to do for me? Yeah, so um, being present always starts in the body. Right? So I would pause and just notice the physical reaction of getting that email. And I would imagine that um, you know I might start to feel tension or heat in my head. Um, I might start to notice some like extra energy running in my arms and, um, you know, I mean, there's just like this feeling tone that shifts in your body. So I think that's a great place to start and recognize it and go, oh, I got this email and that's the impact that it's having on the body. So then I might just take some deep diaphragmatic breaths, right? Because there's actually a condition called email apnea where when while we're doing email, we hold our breath, which then sort of sends our body into that fight or flight mode. So, you know, being mindful is just sort of noticing what is happening in that moment. So that would be the first step. So after you have been mindful and considered the initial impact of the email, so let's look at this common email scenario with a lens of compassion which underlies the loving kindness meditation you discuss in the book. And just as an aside, I was interested to read in the book that in the classes you've taught to lawyers, compassion is the most difficult concept for them to grasp. So that may be the subject of another podcast, but in any case, um, help us understand how cultivating compassion for the author of the email, the seemingly unreasonable client or opposing counsel maybe, how would that help here? Yeah, so I think our sort of natural inclination is to interpret the email um, from the from the frame of you know this person is doing this to be mean or unkind or they're angry. Um, but you know when I bring compassion to the picture, it's really bringing curiosity. So and also taking sort of the most generous view of what 
the intent behind what this person is wanting. So I, I might naturally think, well, you know, this person is always unreasonable and he's always so demanding. Um, but I can actually look behind that and say, well, you know, why is it? Um, is it because, you know, this is the first time he's going through a bankruptcy and and he's just afraid or he's just uncertain, right? And this is how he's expressing that fear. Um, or is it just that, you know, he feels frustrated because he feels like I, I'm not taking care of things in the way that he thinks that I should. Um, so, you know, bringing a, a compassionate for um, what that person is is going through and, and also just recognizing that, you know, just as like I have bad days, that person might also just be having an off day. And that might be the reason why he said this sort of nasty gram and it might not have much to do with me at all. Um, what about self-compassion? Uh, yeah, um, so I think we, you know, when we talk about compassion, we can't talk about compassion towards others without talking about compassion for ourselves because it's only by cultivating compassion for ourselves that we develop the capacity to have compassion towards others. So before I even get to the the person sending the email and bringing compassion towards that person, I might need to actually step back and, you know, sort of secure my own oxygen mask before helping others. And I might just say, wow, like this really hurts that, you know, she would send this type of email after, you know, I really went out of my way to help her or, you know, I really felt like I was giving her um, a lot of attention. And, and, and it kind of stings when that email happened, you know, when I get an email like this. So actually saying, oh, this hurts. Um, oh, this is a difficult moment. And, you know, can I be kind to myself? Um, you know, can I experience more ease in this moment? And just kind of stepping back a little bit and, you know, actually pausing to sort of tend to our own needs first. So we tend to our own needs. We're mindful. We give self-compassion. Now we give compassion to the person that wrote the email. So actually the acronym that I use all the time is STOP. And I think that might be a, a great way for us to sort of frame the steps for the listeners out there that want to sort of practice this. So STOP stands for STOP. Um, T stands for take a breath, which is sort of the mindfulness piece of it. And then observing, so observing what's going on in your body, observing what's going on in your mind, observing what's going on in the person sitting across from you. And then finally proceeding. So proceeding is taking the action. So an action might be that I just sit down and I, um, or, you know, the action might be that I like walk away from my desk, you know, for, and get a drink of water or, or make myself a cup of tea because um, we never want to react from that place where we're feeling angry or triggered, right? We want to always respond from this place of calm and ease. Yeah, I, I really liked the part of your book where you said when you were talking about compassion, where you, with an opposing counsel, just to think in your mind, just like me, and then to fill in the blank. Just like me, this person's trying to do the best they can. Or just like me, they're trying to represent their client. Yeah, yeah, and, and if and if nothing else, you can say, um, you know, just as I wish to be happy, just as you know, I wish to not have be involved in this crazy, difficult case. So does this opposing counsel, right? I went through this amazing program um, through CCare, which is hosted where you are at Stanford University, and they teach an eight-week 
course on cultivating compassion. Um, and I, I really can't recommend this course highly enough. You know, I think in some ways it kind of broke open um, something like really deep inside of me. Like I remember like, you know, sitting in traffic and feeling so incredibly frustrated that I'm in traffic and I'm running late and then just pausing and looking around and going, wow, look at all these other people that are probably desperately wanting to get to where they want to go. And I was like, oh, like, you know, just as like I wish to get to my final destination as quickly as possible, or just as I wish not to be stuck in traffic, I also wish for these people to not be stuck in traffic with me. That phrase, um, just like me, is something that was often repeated in that course. And just that, um, and I think that's such a helpful tool to sort of carry around with you and saying, you know, like, just like me, what's the common denominator that we're both experiencing in this moment? It seems that the consequences of understanding that type of interdependence really could only lead to enhanced feelings of compassion and self-compassion. So that makes a lot of sense. And certainly with opposing counsel, but also in our personal relationships, I think sometimes we can slip into a type of dualistic thinking where we think that you know, one side against the other, but the reality is often very different where there's more of a connection and a shared um, similarity, even in situations where there's great difficulty, there, there often is an overlap of vulnerability or similar challenges. Yeah. The genius of that, just like me phrase, is what it does for the person who says it. It takes away our anger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And I think the compassion practice was really also helpful for me in those situations where I felt like there was nothing I can do. Um, So, you know, for example, like a client would come in and they would tell me that they they have to file for bankruptcy because their daughter died and they literally went into debt and liquidated all of their assets to try to keep their daughter alive. And obviously I can help them out of the debt, but the thing that I can never help them with is their emotional, you know, the the trauma, the pain, right? I can never bring their daughter back. And I remember just feeling so helpless because what they were deeply desiring, obviously, is to have their daughter back and getting them out of debt, you know, almost seems so like insignificant and in the face of this incredible pain that they were going through. And I would just sit there like as they're, crying and just, um, you know, and do that practice of just saying like, wow, you know, I, I wish for these people to um, heal and find happiness and, um, and, you know, and to get through this experience. What I'm taking out of this is the mindfulness, the self-compassion and the compassion. I think that's a terrific set of techniques to deal with difficult events on a day-to-day basis. And Gina, I think the way that you've done it by sharing your own vulnerability and some of the events that did not go so well for you, that is even makes it more effective. I think it's, you know, often we connect with people through what has gone wrong for us in our life, not not always where we've succeeded. So I really appreciated the way that you've written the book. Typically, we like to sign off on our podcast by asking our guests to share a wellness practice they use in their own life. But because we've spent 
this time hearing from Gina how she uses mindfulness in meditation, she has kindly offered to guide us in a loving kindness meditation on the podcast. We're going to publish that as a separate episode. So please tune in after this interview and you will find a 10 minute meditation led by Gina. But before we end, I just want to check in Joe about our technique from last time by Professor Ron Tyler at Stanford. He said that at the end of every day, his favorite wellness technique is to write down three things that went well, why they went well, how he felt at the time and how he feels now when he's reflecting on them. I know you said you use a variant of this three good things with your client. Did you try it out for yourself, Joe? I did use it and I found it really effective. I work with some terrific people in a lab on digital mental health, but I'm so busy when I work with them that I can't really appreciate them. I used Ron's technique at night to focus on just how impressive and public spirited my coworkers are. I felt inspired. For me, the three good things in the gratitude journal, these are not techniques that have resonated with me particularly in the past, but I know there's a lot of research behind it, so I was actually quite interested to see how it would feel. And I agree, I found it very moving. I didn't write about anything extraordinary. What was helpful for me was just to really see the beauty actually in the ordinary of my life. I've been processing some very deep feelings of loss the last couple of months, and it's been a pretty challenging time. So just to reflect on things, what I wrote about were things like I had a wonderful afternoon with my son after school. I had lunch with my mom on a Wednesday, which we do every week. I had some client sessions that went particularly well and felt connected. I had coffee at my favorite coffee shop, which is definitely a highlight for me. So just to see uh, how having these ordinary things every day adds this just sort of beautiful structure to my life that reflecting on that actually was much more valuable than I anticipated. So thumbs up to Ron's reflections. Gina, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Joe and Sarah, for having me. It was such a pleasure, Gina. Several people have asked me, when are you going to interview Gina Cho? And, you know, we actually had you slated, I think, for late July to be our August podcast, but we had some technical difficulties. So I'm very glad we finally made it happen. Thank you so much. Please listen to Gina's guided meditation published today as a separate episode. And for those interested in accessing the other resources from the podcast, including how to find Gina's book, The Anxious Lawyer, please see our website at www.law.stanford.edu backslash wellness project. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast. <laughs>